Can you read? Wow. <laughs> Why don't we read from Titus chapter 1? We'll just start there. I know you guys probably read it in your groups, but it's always good um, just to hear his word read over and over again. So Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, just to, before we get to our passage for night, tonight, you know, just want to review, um, as we just read, just the first section of Titus. Um, in the opening greeting of his letter, which composes the first four verses, the Apostle Paul introduces himself as a, ser- as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he is writing as one under divine authority or divine command who has been entrusted to preach a divine message. We also see in that first section that he writes with a specific purpose in mind. And what was his goal in ministry? Well, the second part of verse 1 says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. His aim and his vision was to see the church of Jesus Christ grow in faith and in knowledge of the truth that leads to godly living. That was his purpose in mind. And how was this purpose to be accomplished? Well, we see that the power and authority in his life and in his ministry was what? It was the gospel, right? And this was what saved the Apostle Paul. 
This was what called the Apostle Paul. This was what equipped him and empowered him into ministry. And the Apostle Paul here is writing to Titus, whom he refers to in verse 4, as my true child in a common faith. Their relationship as members of God's family was based not upon a common experience, but upon a common faith. And what was the basis of that faith? Oh, well, it's the gospel, right? The gospel was the basis for their fellowship and their partnership. And as we come to the body of the letter, starting in verse 5, we see that Titus had been left behind by the apostle to pastor the churches in Crete. And he had been given a specific assignment, and that was to put what remained into order, starting with the leadership of the church. This was to be his very first order of business. And setting up gospel leadership in the churches in Crete was to be a priority among the various things he was called to do. And how was Titus to do that? In whatever way seemed right in his own eyes? Well, end of verse 5 says, as I directed you. And what does I refer back to? Titus 1.1, right? I refers to Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is not just anyone giving Titus instructions. Paul was an apostle, literally a messenger of Jesus Christ, who was delivering divine instruction under God's authority to his people. And Titus was to follow it to a T. God had not left it up to Titus, and he has not left it up to us to figure out how to set up leadership in his household. Instead, he's given us his clear, his sufficient, and his authoritative word through the teaching of the apostles. And we are not to add, take away, or modify it, simply to adhere to it by faith. And we learned last time that those whom Titus is to appoint as elders are to meet God's standard for gospel leadership. And according to verses 6 through 9, Spiritual leaders must reflect the work of the gospel in two spheres or realms. First, in his character, verses 6 through 8. And also in his commitment, verse 9. At the end of the day, it is the work of the gospel that qualifies a man for leadership. Not his natural ability, his skill, experience, knowledge, or education. And previously, we looked at the character of a gospel leader. His overall reputation is to be above reproach. And that's repeated in verse 6 and 7. And literally, it means to be blameless, right? It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but that he is blameless, above reproach, in what way? In Christ-like character. And reason that Christ-likeness is God's standard for gospel leadership is because the church, according to Ephesians 4.15, is called to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And all of these character qualifications listed here in Titus 1 
as well as in 1 Timothy 3, were perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Christ was not arrogant or quick-tempered. Christ was not a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Christ was hospitable, a lover of good, and self-controlled. Christ was upright, holy, and disciplined. We also saw from verse 6 that leadership in the church is to be an extension of our leadership in our home. There must first be a pattern of faithfulness to his wife in sexual purity, as well as faithfulness in shepherding his own children to submit to his godly authority. Leadership in the home is a prerequisite and a testing ground for leadership in God's household. This is God's standard for gospel leadership, and neither Titus nor we have the prerogative to lower or change it. And left to ourselves, no one would qualify. But that's why it's the work of God, not man, that saves, calls, transforms, and equips men through the power and authority of his gospel to be above reproach and to fulfill his high calling for leadership in the church. And Titus's job, as well as ours, is simply to affirm those men in the church in whom the fruit and pattern of godliness is seen as he submits to the lordship of Christ and to the authority of his word. Can I get my next slide? Tonight, before we get to our passage that you all exegeted, in verses 10 through 16, we're going to finish off part two of gospel leadership. And that is the commitment of a gospel leader. And that is namely his unwavering commitment to the word of God. His unwavering commitment to the word of God. Godliness that serves as a model and example to follow is absolutely necessary for leadership in the church. However, It is not sufficient. He must be above reproach in character, verses 6 through 8. But he must also hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, verse 9. Both are essential and necessary. And even though we've divided the teaching into the character and the commitment of a gospel leader based on the text, let me just say up front that the two are inseparable. Godliness and commitment to the authority of God's word cannot be separated. It is not possible to have one without the other, for both are the fruit of the gospel. That's one of the major themes in Titus, and we'll even see that tonight from a negative perspective in the lives of these false teachers. That heresy has no power to produce holiness, whereas godly character flows out of holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There is no other means to godliness or path to spiritual leadership. And as we consider the need for leaders, both elders and deacons, to first be tested, according to 1 Timothy 3, What are we to look for? Do they endure trials and resist temptation 
by clinging to the word of God, such that in the end they prove themselves blameless and above reproach. The power to produce godliness is in the divine word, not in the man. So even as we talk about them separately, let us remember that godly character and a commitment to his authoritative word are inextricably linked. The character is the fruit of this commitment. Now with that said, let's take a closer look at this commitment of a gospel leader. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We see in the first half of the verse the need for commitment. The need for the commitment. The Apostle Paul repeats the word must from verse 7 as a necessary requirement for gospel leadership. Previously, the Apostle Paul gave a list of characteristics of what an elder must not be, followed in verse 8 by what he must be. Here in verse 9, he he transitions to what an elder must do. That is to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The word translated hold firm is antecho in the Greek. And it means to cling to, to hold fast to, or be devoted to. The word of God is to be his supreme authority. There is to be no higher commitment. It is the anchor to which he clings and holds fast to in the storms of life and ministry. Recognizing its divine source from the God who never lies, Titus 1-2, he is to bind himself to the pistos logos, that is, the trustworthy word as taught by the apostles. For we know that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, according to 2 Peter 1.21. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the divine source. And nothing else is more reliable. Nothing else is more dependable. Nothing else is more worthy of our trust than the infallible word of God. He must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. But why? The second half, if I can get my next slide, of verse 9 tells us the reasons for the commitment. The reasons for the commitment. It says, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There is a twofold purpose for the commitment required, one positive and one negative, and they go hand in hand. On the one hand, it is in order to give instruction or to exhort in sound doctrine. On the other hand, it is in order to rebuke those who promote and adhere to a false doctrine. This unwavering commitment to the word of God is to be applied in two ways. The means is the same, but the application is different depending on who and what is being addressed. 
2 Timothy 3.16, a verse we are all pretty familiar with, speaks to the sufficiency of God's word for every occasion. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, not just for teaching, but also for reproof. Not just for correction, but also for training in righteousness. The elder has no inherent authority or power. It is only in submitting to and adhering to the word of God that he has the ability to accomplish the necessary tasks of instructing and rebuking. And this qualification corresponds to the able to teach in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3.2. And it is the divine enablement in the life of a gospel leader as he holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught. First, to give instruction is not merely conveying information, but rather to exhort to obedience. It is to teach and it is to declare the whole counsel of God so that those who belong to his household might observe all that Christ commanded. The aim or goal is obedience to the lordship of Christ. And it is accomplished by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. Titus 2.1 It is essentially discipleship. And it is this ministry of the word for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth to which God has called elders in the church. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. But in light of our context, namely, the ongoing threat of false teaching, there is a second purpose or reason for the commitment required. It is to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. This is necessary because, as we'll see shortly, the Word of God is constantly under threat and attack, not just from those outside the church, but particularly from those within. Ephesians 6 reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at the end of verse 3, when he writes, We are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is the battle that we, the church, are daily, daily fighting under the orders of our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ? For what type of war must we put on the whole armor of God? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Scripture does call each of us to battle. But this spiritual warfare, as we just read, is not about some spiritual experience or encounter, as the 
Pentecostal and charismatic movements would suggest. Instead, we fight against arguments, opinions, and thoughts that oppose and contradict the knowledge of God. It's a war for the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, Titus 1.1. As Christians, this is the realm of our spiritual battle. The weapons of our enemy are false doctrine and heresy that lead to apostasy. Any teaching that deviates from the inerrant word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of this real danger and ongoing threat, the Apostle Paul instructs Titus that it is imperative that elders in the church hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able not only to give instruction in sound doctrine, but also to rebuke those who contradict it. And this last responsibility of the elder to rebuke leads into the next section, starting in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. We saw the need for the commitment in verse 9a, the reasons for the commitment in verse 9b, and finally here in verses 10 through 16, we come to the occasion for the commitment, the occasion for the commitment to God's word. The word for that begins verse 10 links this section with the preceding one. It explains or describes the current situation that demands the requirement that elders be able to rebuke by holding firm the word of God. But it is not an occasion that is limited or exclusive to the church in Crete, to which the Apostle Paul was writing. In fact, in the book of 1 Timothy, we see a very similar situation going on in the church in Ephesus, as the Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Almost 2,000 years later, we face the same sort of challenge in our church today. That is because the church's primary threat of false teaching and our ultimate calling to be a gospel witness to the pagan world have not changed over time. While the details might be different between a 21st century church in the Bay Area and a 1st century church in Crete, the principle from God's word are timeless and unchanging. They are as true for us today as it was back then for Titus. And what we discover from this section, Titus 1, 10 through 16, is that the gospel calls the church and its leaders to rebuke false teaching. The gospel calls the church and its leaders to rebuke false teaching. Having stated the elders' dual responsibilities of exhorting and rebuking, the Apostle Paul expands on it here, starting with what it means to rebuke who we are to rebuke, what we are to rebuke, where and when we are to rebuke, how we are to rebuke, and why. Who, what, where, when, how, and why. And the Apostle Paul accomplishes this by giving us in these seven verses the spiritual profile of a false teacher, 
specifically his character and his commitment. This is the indicative that demands the imperative to rebuke, given in verse 13, repeated from verse 9. And what we see is that the character and commitment of a false teacher is the mirror opposite of the character and commitment of a gospel leader that we saw earlier in verses 5 through 9. Let's take a closer look first at his character. What are the descriptions of a false teacher that the Apostle Paul gives in verses 10 through 16? What are the fruits by which we are to identify them in the church? First, from verse 10, they are insubordinate. It means that they are rebellious, disobedient, unwilling to submit to the authority of God in his word. They are also empty talkers. Their words have no value or substance. They lack any real significance or impact. They're useless, pointless, and worthless, devoid of any power to produce positive change. Deceivers. They attempt to mislead others from the truth. They do that by presenting a counterfeit truth. They're foolish, but they're not stupid. And they know, if you've ever gone fishing before, that you cannot catch a fish by simply throwing a hook in the water. But you put a bait on it, it's a whole different game. And this is what makes false teaching so dangerous. It looks like the truth. It sounds like the truth. Smells, tastes, and feels like the truth. But nothing can be farther from the truth. And only the light of God's word can expose it for what it truly is. Not only are they insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, they are also, many of them, of the circumcision party. And this is likely a reference to Jewish Christians. If we look at cross-reference passages like Acts 10.45, Galatians 2.12, Colossians 4.11. But these are people on the inside, having a Jewish background, who speak the same religious language and have similar practices. However, they clearly have a different agenda. Verse 11, they're motivated by shameful or sordid gain. In stark contrast to the elder who must not be greedy for gain, they have a love of money and a desire for riches that underline what they do. We might think of the televangelists and preachers of the prosperity gospel. But at the end of the day, they're self-willed and in it for themselves. Verse 12 These false teachers are also liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this is a direct quotation from Epimenides of Crete. He lived somewhere between the 6th and 5th century BC. And as liars, these false teachers take after Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies, John 8. Rather than God, who never lies, 
Titus 1-2. As evil beasts, they are like wild animals, unruly, unrestrained, and uncontrolled in their appetites and behavior. Lazy gluttons. That literally means idle bellies. They're excessively indulgent and given over to their lust and flesh. And in verse 13, the Apostle Paul affirms this self-testimony to be true of these false teachers whose character and conduct reflected the culture to which they belonged rather than the power and authority of the gospel. A few more. Verse 15, defiled, means unclean, impure, and corrupted by sin. In contrasting those who are pure from those who are defiled, the Apostle Paul uses the the language of Old Testament Jewish laws found in the Torah, particularly in the book of Leviticus, that designated certain foods and conditions such as leprosy unclean. And in verse 16, he repeats the word defiled and specifically applies it to their minds and to their consciences. The source of their defilement being internal, it is out of the overflow of their heart that their mouth speaks. Verse 15, they're also unbelieving. Not a lack of knowledge, but it it refers to a refusal a refusal to accept and believe in the truth. And finally, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In the end, nothing that they do is acceptable or pleasing in God's sight. Instead, they are abominable, disobedient, and continuously, and disqualified for any fruitful work or ministry. Now that is quite a list. And just in case you thought you might never run across them at church on Sunday or at a Bible study like this, the Apostle Paul says, there are not just a few of them, but many of them. And in case you are tempted to let down your guard, all that it takes is a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. Well, if this is the character profile of these false teachers in the church, what are their commitments? What do they cling to, hold firm or hold fast to, such that the testimony of their lives is the fruit of unrighteousness? Instead of the word of God, they are devoted to shameful gain. Verse 11, talked about this earlier. They seek a financial profit. We also saw the same thing of these false teachers in the book of 1 Timothy. There are also, instead of devoting themselves to the word of God, they devote themselves to teaching what they ought not to teach. Verse 11. Rather than teaching what they should, that which accords with sound doctrine and godliness, they perpetuate lies and distortions of the gospel And the word of God. Instead of the word of God, they are devoted to Jewish myths. Verse 14. And commentators have attempted to identify the particular heresy that the church in Crete had to deal with. And we cannot know for certain. 
But there's evidence within the letter that seems to suggest that it was likely myths that were built upon Old Testament Jewish genealogies. Regardless of what it was, it was clearly not what they should have been teaching. The trustworthy word of God is taught by the apostles. Instead of devoting themselves to the word of God, they also devote themselves, they instead devote themselves to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Verse 14. Again, whatever the specific heresy was, it is characterized as man-made commands that deviate from the truth rather than the commands of God that are found in his word. At the end of the day, this is true of all heresy that comes into the church. They are the traditions, precepts, and commandments of man that reject the authoritative and errant word of God. Finally, instead of the word of God, they are devoted to a false, false profession of faith. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They claim to know God, but their profession belies their true confection. There's an inconsistency between their works, what they do, and their words, what they say. With these false teachers, the Apostle Paul is not talking about unbelievers on the outside but with false believers on the inside. And as you read through the Gospels, we see how Christ dealt with various people he encountered during his earthly ministry. He called unbelievers to repentance. Specifically in those days, there were the tax collectors, the prostitutes and sinners. We think of the Samaritan woman at the well. We think of Zacchaeus. We think of the woman who was caught in adultery. But with false Believers, many of whom were the religious leaders who held positions of authority and teaching, Christ confronted, exposed, and sharply rebuked. In Matthew chapter 15, in response to the Pharisees and scribes who came to him asking, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, starting in verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. How so? For they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Later on in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, defiled. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The point is, like Christ, elders and deacons, leaders in God's household, must be able and willing to rebuke false teachers who profess to know God, but contradict his word and deny him by their works. Going back to our text in Titus, we see why this is necessary. Verse 11, they are upsetting whole families. 
we see the impact of the commitment of these false teachers. And it is not insignificant. The word for upsetting, anatrepo, is used here figuratively of overturning, destroying, or ruining. False teachers, their doctrine and their practices are a dangerous and devastating threat to Christ's church. For this reason, the Apostle Paul says, they must be silenced and sharply rebuked. They must not be tolerated or ignored for a while, but dealt with swiftly and thoroughly. They are not to be given a voice to spread error or falsehood. To rebuke sharply, it means to speak against with cutting force. And in the very next chapter, he calls Titus to rebuke with all authority. And in his final charge to Titus, as he closes this letter, he writes in verse 10 of chapter 3, As for a man who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The household of God and the doctrine of his word must be protected at all cost. And the elders, as God's steward and overseer of his church, have this primary responsibility. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. However, the Apostle Paul is not saying that everyone else in the church can let down their guards, that no one else is responsible for protecting God's flock. We are all members of his household. And just as Becky and I would do whatever it takes to protect our four boys from any imminent danger, as God's family, we must see one another in the same light. Whether it be the danger of false teaching or the danger of unrepentant sin. The implication here is that it should be true of all members of God's household, men and women, deacons and discipleship leaders. And while it should be true of everyone in the church, it must be true of the elders. Can I get my next slide? Final slide here. Having considered the character and commitment of these false teachers, what can we ultimately say about them? When we trace their character and their commitments back to their hearts, what is missing from their lives that is present in every believer and should be abounding in the lives of leaders in the church? It's the power and authority of the gospel. That is why everything about them, from their teaching and doctrine to their character and conduct, is unsound, empty, defiled, worthless, and detestable. And I'm going to say this, not under my own authority, but from the authority that comes from his word. For some of you in this room and listening via live stream, this is the path that you are presently on. Perhaps you've been in the church for a while, but things have not yet been fully exposed. You profess to know Christ, but deny him by your works. Your life is characterized by unsound doctrine and ungodly living, devoid of the transforming power of the gospel. 
You may not be in a position to teach formally, but you are rebellious and promoting things that are contrary to the truth. And it is a path that is destructive to your soul and dangerous to the church. You are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, these are not my words, but his. And if that is you, you need to repent and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, for he is a merciful Savior. And if you are truly a child of God, you have nothing to boast about but in the cross of Jesus Christ. The difference between the lives of these false teachers and ours is not how righteous we were and how unrighteous they are. It's what God did to save us, wretched, worthless sinners, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, including the Apostle Paul, who was formerly a false teacher. I can imagine that as he wrote verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That he was not writing from a position of pride, but of humility. As he considered his own life before Christ. Recall in Acts chapter 9 how Paul, who was Saul back then, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Christ when he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It was on that road to Damascus, as a staunch opponent and enemy of the gospel, that he was confronted and sharply rebuked by Christ himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what was the outcome of that encounter? It's the same positive outcome hoped for by the Apostle Paul when he writes to Titus, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. In the call to rebuke, we see the heart of our Savior reflected in the heart of the Apostle Paul, who desires for all people, not just for kings and those in high positions, Not just for those who grew up in the church, but also for false teachers like Saul of Tarsus to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. As we are called as his church to rebuke false teaching, is that our desire as well? In summary and as we close, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that orders the leadership of the church. And it is the gospel that calls the church and its leaders to humbly but boldly rebuke false teaching. This is only possible as we hold firm to the authoritative and trustworthy word of God as taught. In light of the ongoing threat of heresy in the church, God is calling men who are above reproach to exhort and rebuke for the protection of the flock and for the salvation of the lost, including these false teachers that they too may be sound in the faith. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is Christ's blueprint for his church. It is his standard for gospel leadership. And it is what calls us to rebuke false teaching in the church. So then, will we be faithful and committed to his gospel calling for our church? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your divine truth. We thank you that ultimately it points to your mercy, your grace in our lives. It points to your greatness and your goodness. Lord, that none of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve to be a part of your household. None of us deserve the ministry to which we've been called, whether it is as a leader or as a servant, wherever you call us, Lord, it is all by your grace and it's all by your mercy because we are sinners deserving of your wrath. Lord, thank you for the gospel, the precious truth that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again on our behalf so that we might have fellowship with you and with one another. And together as his church, live out the calling, the high calling you have given to us to uphold and guard sound doctrine and the precious truth of the gospel, as well as to care for members of your household. Lord, would you help us in the days and weeks and months ahead, knowing, Lord, the battle that we are in, Lord, it is not against flesh and blood. As we're reminded, God, we are constantly under attack by the enemy. But Lord, just as the power and authority in our lives is the gospel, it is also our hope that what you have prescribed will come to pass. You will build your church because you are faithful until the end. We thank you and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.